Wondery Plus subscribers can listen to 10% Happier early and ad-free right now. Join Wondery Plus in the Wondery app or on Apple Podcasts. From ABC, this is the 10% Happier Podcast. I'm Dan Harris. Hello. Quick item of business here. We love hearing your questions via voicemail. So I just want to remind everybody, if you want to call and leave a message, 646-883-8326. Also got the number posted in the show notes, 646-883-8326. Give us a call. I'll answer your question, or even better, we'll we'll run it by one of the amazing teachers we have on the show. By the way, this week, no voicemails uh, for a good reason, because this conversation was so fantastic and rich that I wanted to let it run longer than we usually do. So I figured... You're going to get enough deep dharma and technical meditation in here. Uh, so uh, so no voicemails, but we'll be back with voicemails next week. Our guests are Tanisara and Kitty Saro. Those are their Buddhist monk and nun names, although they're both Western. Kitty Saro was born uh, – that's the husband. They're married. Um, he was born uh, in the Deep South, and Tanisara was born in the UK. And they both went off to become – to ordain – as uh, in uh, the under a, Thai, a legendary Thai teacher who you're going to hear all about, and that's how they met. And then they they kind of had this forbidden romance, and uh, we're we're also going to dive pretty deeply into that story. And so they they left um, the the order of monks and nuns and got married, and then now they teach all all over the world. They're legendary teachers. I in fact first heard about them from former guest Seven A Selassie. And uh, because she studies with them. And so I've been intrigued uh, and, and and have been wanting to get them on the show for a long time. Really happy that they came on the show and they did not disappoint. I would say there were really three things uh, other than their biography, which is well worth hearing that we we dive into here. One of them is, is what's it like to be in a romantic relationship, given the amount, the, the sheer volume of meditation practice they both had and have under their belts. What you know? What do they still rub each other the wrong way? And how does that go? And we also talk about they make a case for devotional practice that I I'd, I'd, I'd always been you know probably unsurprising to many of you uh, a little bit resistant to the idea of devotional practice. You know the bowing and the chanting, but they make a case for it that actually really got me thinking. So I actually wanted to call. This episode, The Case for Devotion, because it applies both to their personal relationship and also to one of the ways in which they practice. And then toward the end, we also get to uh, the climate crisis and how that plays into their practice. So a lot here. Uh, without further ado, here are uh, Tanisara and Kitty Saro. Nice to meet both of you. <laughs> Thank you. Thanks yeah. for, Thank for you. doing this. Appreciate yeah. it. Yeah. Tanisara, let me start with you. How did you get interested in meditation and Buddhism? Um, well, when I first did a meditation retreat, I didn't really know it was Buddhism. I was um, about 18. Were you tricked into this? Kind of, slightly, <laughs> maybe. I was, uh, my boyfriend wanted to do it. Uh, yeah, so um, I tagged along with him. It was in the UK. And uh, it was a retreat center outside of Oxford. And it was where a lot of young people were just beginning to practice meditation. And we were practicing a form that had come out of Burma from a teacher called Ubakin, who was famous really for a method that became popularized through Goenka, Goenkaji, or they called it Vipassana. 
So we were doing that method. It was taught by a Burmese monk who couldn't really speak English, and I couldn't speak Burmese. So I didn't really understand a lot what was going on, um, and it was very rigorous. So um, my first experience was quite tough, but there was enough in it that for a short while I felt something. I felt some peace, and I knew it was important. I, I knew this is important. And even though halfway through the retreat, I tried to leave, tried to run away. Uh, I didn't get very far. Um, then I came back. Um, that I that it that something caught me in it, you know. So I carried on, and then later I realized, oh, that was that's this is Buddhism that I'm practicing. So really, it was the meditation that attracted me first. It was the and then the Dharma teachings that supported the meditation. Yeah. What do you, what do you think was going on in your life that this was so powerful t- for you? Um, well, I I at that time I was living in an alternative community, so I'd left my family home and um, was this sort of just questioning very deeply the trajectory that I was supposed to be on in the society at that time. I was studying art. And I was actually studying fashion, and I began to realize how empty it was for me. And um, so then I shifted to do fine arts. And I really. Finance was less empty? uh, Fine arts. Oh, fine fine arts. arts. Oh, finance. finance. Yeah, yeah. No, I've never been good at finance. No disrespect to the finance people out there. I know. But anyway, as much as I love that, it felt, it began to feel more empty. I think I went through this experience they call in Buddhism Nibhida, which is a sense of emptiness about everything that's elevated in the society, you know, like a career or marriage or, or. I don't think making money was that so elevated in the culture that I came from, a deeply working-class culture, but it was definitely you find a good job, a stable job, and you get married and you sort of settle down. That was the sort of trajectory, and I, I sort of really didn't want to do all of that. So I dropped out, and I was living a commune, basically, at that time, in the city, in the city of Southampton, and um, we were very experimental. We were just doing all sorts of different workshops. I started to read all of these far out different books. I've been reading Don Juan's book and, you know, sort of something about that that was really evocative. So I was sort of really looking for some alternative way of being and understanding. And in the midst of that, it just became apparent that meditation um, was really the next step. I needed to learn how to shift consciousness um, and the way to or to open my consciousness and what I understood in a very sort of simplistic way. I, I mean, there wasn't a lot of sophistication in my understanding, um, but I sort of somehow got the core message that that the meditation was important. So when this opportunity for a retreat came and when my boyfriend at the time was very you know, focused on doing that and my friends were doing it. I just kind of tagged along. So, and ironically, I landed up to be the person because I wasn't like that committed to do the retreat, but I just thought I'd just tag along and learn a little bit. I didn't realize how serious and hardcore that retreat was going to be, you know, up at four in the morning and practicing in silence. And, you know, it was intense. But ironically, I was the person that, 
that landed up taking it on out of our group the most seriously until about three or four years later, I landed up ordaining and taking robes. You became a nun. I became a nun. I became a Buddhist nun for 12 years. And I, I was inspired to do that by meeting Ajahn Chah, forest master of northeast Thailand. And I think my own teacher, Ajahn Chah. Ajahn Chah. I actually opened uh, my last book with a quote from him, which is, The untrained mind is stupid. Mm. <laughs> that Great sounds quote. like Ajahn Chah. Yes. <laughs> he was very direct and simple. Uh, yeah, I think that horrified my friends that I'd taken it so seriously. But yeah, I ended up doing that. Mm. Yeah, so yeah, the meditative path was something that really, um, and I, I'd been listening, I had been reading a lot of Krishnamurti and lis- reading a lot of about Indian saints, um, reading a lot of wise people um, that were a little acultural. I didn't really find that in my culture so much at that time. So the thread for me was this more mystical, uh, meditative approach. That's what was drawing me. And it was a very mysterious thing. I wouldn't say that there was some logical way that I was making those steps. It was quite intuitive. It's like this door opened, this door opened, and I just went through those different doors until I landed up on the doorstep of Ajahn Chah. Um, And he was the person, I think, um, that really, and I still think that to this day, 43 years later or whatever it is, that he was the one that I mean, embodied such a profound wisdom and is such a dyna- was such a dynamic teacher, um, that um, direct teacher, that um, it, I was greatly impacted, impacted enough to really want to take the robes and then practice his style of, of practice through that, that lifestyle. And if memory serves, it was through that community that you met the gentleman seated to your left. Um, so, so let me just let me back up for a second with you, Kitsaro. Am I pronouncing that correctly? Mm, correct. How did you get interested in meditation? Uh, thank you. Thank you, Dan. Um, I was uh, a student at uh, Oxford on um, a Rhodes Scholarship. After having graduated from Princeton, from Princeton, right? yes. and uh, I was planning to, I unexpectedly got this scholarship. I, I didn't expect it, but I was in uh, planning to go on to medical school afterwards. Uh, but um, in a way, it was quite fortuitous to to be in Oxford because my whole life up to that point had had a lot of uh, ambition and drive and. You know, good things. I was working hard, but always uh, aiming for the next uh, tournament uh, or, or accomplishment. By tournament, you're referring to your wrestling, wrestling yes. or accomplishment. Uh, and so I, I was very oriented around uh, success and, and, and markers of success and trying to be a, a good person. Um, but it was while I was at Oxford uh, in a... Um, um, one of the Oxford colleges uh, that I was at it was called Worcester College. Had beautiful gardens, and uh, that I felt this this what uh, Tanisha was talking about this weariness. You know, I was uh, twenty four. I felt one hundred and four. I was just exhausted with always driving to the next thing, and um, I used to enjoy sitting silently in churches when no one was there. 
um, had a complicated, in a way, r- religious background. My uh, father was New York Jew, Jewish. My mother was a Southern Baptist. So that's very. And you were raised in Tennessee. Tennessee. And what was your birth name? Uh, Harry Randolph Weinberg. Okay. So, so my dad's uh, was Morris Weinberg. And so uh, one day, uh, well, they wanted their children to have a, a, a spiritual background, but they, dad didn't want to become a Baptist, and mom didn't want to convert to Judaism. And, and, um, but one day, mom saw in the paper a little note. Are you in? Uh, she said, Mo, do you think this might be for us? And it said, uh, uh, are you a Unitarian and don't know it? So they brought us to the Unitarian church when there was uh, – well, they went when there was just 10 people. And, uh, but it was a very non-dogmatic uh, approach to life. Uh, the idea there was a mysterious, sacred core to this uh, experience of life but that one could learn from many different sources. So, you know, as I was growing up, we would have heard about Buddha. We would have heard about, obviously, the Christ and Moses and, and Muhammad. And, um, but I went to a school that was, had a lot of fundamentalist high school. There was a lot of fundamentalists. Uh. This show is brought to you by BetterHelp. I got to tell you, I feel so much better when I talk about my anxiety instead of keeping it bottled up. There's an expression that I first heard from the great researcher and also Zen practitioner Robert Waldinger, never worry alone. Our temptation many times is to keep it bottled up, but the data really show that the people who do the best in life, who live the longest and are the happiest, have strong relationships with people with whom they can talk about whatever's going on in their lives. And for me, therapy is part of that. If you're thinking of starting therapy, you might give BetterHelp a try. It's entirely online, designed to be convenient, flexible, and suited to your schedule. Get it off your chest with BetterHelp. Visit BetterHelp.com slash happier today to get 10% off your first month. That's BetterHelp, H-E-L-P dot com slash happier. As they say at Amica, empathy is our best policy. Whether you need auto, home, or life insurance, they're ready to help you protect the things that matter most to you. They're a mutual company, customer-owned, in service to you. Amica representatives are here when you need them, and you can take comfort knowing a real person will be there on the phone to take care of you because the greatest measure of their success is your satisfaction. Christian uh, viewpoints and, you know, being told that we're going to hell because my name is Weinberg and my dad was Jewish. And, and uh, so, you know, I tended, if you'd have told me all those years ago that I was going to end up as a Buddhist monk and, and dedicating so much life to a quote-unquote religious practice, I would have thought you were crazy. So, uh, but all these years later, when I was uh, exhausted with achieving, I didn't even know if I knew how to put those words to it. I would sit quietly in a chapel uh, and just something about the pausing, the sitting, the resonance of the presence. I realized there's something I had been overlooking. I wouldn't have even known how to articulate that, but I, I realized 
I need a teacher. And I have always been grateful for teachers, grateful that in this world there are those beings who can share what they know and, and bless you and encourage you and, and guide you. And I, I realized I, I, I want to, like I had great wrestling coaches, great teachers at, at school and university, but I sensed there was something to do with inner. I wouldn't have known how to put the words to it, but something about a, a, an inner landscape. So while I was at Oxford, once the, the porter to my college, you know, that guards the gate of the college and sees who comes in and out of your university college, I was friends with him, and, and he, he saw this little note uh, in the paper about that there were some Buddhist monks chanting somewhere. And so he said, would you like to go? And he, I said, yeah. So he took me. And I heard these, these monks chanting, and something in the resonance was familiar, something. And I uh, ended up uh, going on to my first meditation retreat. And similar to Tanisra, it was really difficult. My mind's banging all around. But I think sometime on day three, somewhere three, four, I had moments of, of, of being present. And it was even between sessions. I was outside, and, and I, it was in the morning. There was a, a bush and, a, and dewdrops. In the, and I just felt the, the beauty of pausing and just standing there being with the, the, the beauty the, uh, and at ease of, of, the, of what... It was like a moment of beholding, beholding this life. And that was so different for someone who my life always had this trajectory. And it's not bad. I'm not putting that down. But I, I never knew what it was like to, to, to be more here. And, and, and that was enough of a, a powerful taste. And that by coincidence on this, uh, uh, on this uh, I think I did this next retreat that I was on, someone was passing through that needed a place to stay in Oxford. And, um, and the manager of the meditation retreat said, oh, we have a student here. And, and they introduced him to me, and this guy wanted to... to he lived in Thailand. He was American, but a doctor, a researcher, and uh, was wanting to talk to Oxford philosophers about the origin of thought. And I said, oh, yeah, you can stay in our flat, our apartment. And, uh, and so while talking to him, he told all these stories. of He was a trekker. He had trekked across the North Pole. He had done... Uh, and then one of his hobbies was studying meditation monasteries in Thailand and doing as a, um, I think, was he a psychiatrist? Yeah, he, he did all these personality tests to see what over time was the impact of meditation on the personality structures of these different monks. So he's talking, and he's a confident guy. But then he said, there's one special monastery. And his demeanor started to change. And then he started talking about the abbot of this monastery. And he said, Ajahn Chah. And this strong, confident, no-nonsense um, man of the world, the way he was speaking about Ajahn Chah and just saying the word enlightened. 
and the reverence. I'd never encountered it like that, his reverence for this person. And then he said, oh, and there's a few Westerners out there. And there's another Westerner. If he's not enlightened, he's close. And he mentioned this uh, monk, American monk named Ajahn Sumaito. And just hearing that, it, it was like a, a gong going off in my uh, life. I realized I, I want to go. I want to meet this wise person. And, uh, and so I, I remember asking him, I said, will you take me to him? And, uh, and he said, yeah. So I, you know, within weeks, I got this leave of absence from the uh, Rhodes Trust. I told my family. Oh, my parents were horrified. They were so excited about me being a Rhodes Scholar and then looking on the map, and I'm here their son's going halfway around the world. And this was 70s. This was after the Vietnam catastrophe. This was the Laotian bombings. This was the rumors of the Cambodia killing fields were coming out. And the monastery where I was going to was right on the near the Laotian-Cambodian border. But, but yeah, I got this leave of absence, and, 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 uh, and it's interesting, the warden to the Rhodes Trust, this was the... Sir Edgar Williams, the man in charge of the Rhodes Scholars, looking after the American ones. I thought he would give me trouble for wanting to take off. To, but he, uh, he said, yeah, yes. He says, you know, I'll give you a couple of years. You, you can go. And I justified it in terms of my thesis and said I would learn about more about uh, Buddhism because I was studying the works of Aldous Huxley, art science and religion in the works of Aldous Huxley. And in Huxley's life, he was bringing the modes of being, the, the creative craft. The, the doors scientist, of perception. Absolutely, bringing it all together. And so he said, yes, no, you, you can have a leave of absence. But he, he looked at me and he said, my name was Randy. He says, Randy, you, you can have that leave of absence. He said, but you're not coming back. I said, oh, yes, I am. I'm going to come back and finish my thesis. He said, no, 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 you're not coming back. He said, but... You've got your degree from Princeton? He said, here at the Rhodes, we're, we're, we're interested in the person, not the process. Well, I'm not worried about degrees. He says, Randy, I think you found your vocation. I thought, what? He saw something in me that I didn't even know was there. He, he was, during World War II, was an intelligence specialist helping track Rommel in the deserts and stuff, but he had seen something. And I'm so pleased before he died, after I was a monk, I was able to go back and express gratitude for him. He didn't shame me, but he, he gave me like almost a prophecy. So I then, uh, you know, went off to Thailand, met Ajahn Chah, and then I stayed a monk. For so, so I'm months. talking to a Rhodes dropout? Rhodes dropout, <laughs> yeah, yeah, yeah. yeah. I I'm, uh, never got my... Uh, Degree, but uh, Sir Edgar Williams wasn't at all worried about that. <laughs> I, just brief digression. I, I love. Um, I've never had the opportunity to talk Dharma with somebody with a Southern accent, so that uh, is uh -huh. a, a pleasure in and of itself. I read a, an interview you gave in which you talked about your first meeting with the aforementioned Ajahn yeah, Chah, yeah. where he imitated a dog. Absolutely. Okay, t t tell us about that. Well, I you know I was. 
so excited about meeting this master. And I had uh, uh, also read, not long before I went, uh, Ram Dass's account in Be Here Now. You know, and he used to be a professor at Harvard, Richard Alpert. And he became Ram Dass that his account of, of going off and meeting his guru named Karoli Baba. And Guru tapped him on the forehead and it was a powerful experience. And so, you know, to me, this idea of meeting this great master was exciting. And, and uh, so I was uh, – and yet it was hard to get there because I arrived on the worst day in, in modern Thai history. I arrived October 6, 1976. There was a, a, a revolution. Usually the coups in Thailand are bloodless. This one was a – uh, an exiled general had snuck into the country, orchestrated orchestrated a coup, and many students ended up being uh, massacred. Uh, it was we were told I had to go back, but uh, the person I was with said, "Hey, let's just wait, let things calm down." And then after a week or so, he then took me on the nine-hour overnight train ride up to the northeast, and he took me to uh, Ajahn Chah's monastery. And this guy, I was telling you, he was cool as a cucumber. He was really. This uh, is the trekker. Yeah, guy, yeah, yeah, yeah. Doctor Douglas Burns, and um, but as we were walking, he loved animals. But as we were walking into the monastery, he saw uh, some of the postulants tormenting a snake, which he said, "You know, this is a protected monastery. Why?" And so when we got to Ajahn Chah's little hut. He was in, a, in quite a state, and Ajahn Chah was calming him down. Ajahn Chah offered him a cup of tea, and he was so agitated he knocked over the tea. And so anyway, I'm, I'm just there and watching Ajahn Chah uh, calm him down. I see everybody's bowing. I, I was in overalls, had my beard, and I was trying to do a bow because I wanted to just fit in and uh, just watching. And Ajahn, We're on the floor, and Ajahn Chah's in this little wicker chair. But then at some point he turned to to me and said something in Thai and Doug just said, no, he, he wants to know uh, uh, why you're here. And so, you know, I came up with something and I think I threw the word enlightenment in there that I was, you know, hoping to get enlightened. But, you know, sometimes when you talk it's sort of a bit tinny and you don't really know what you're talking about and so it it sort of petered out and he was, hmm. But then he said, uh, well, do you know how to meditate? And immediately I felt on firmer ground because I told you I'd done a 10-day retreat and a half. I'd done another. So I'd done, you know, not, to me that was some real meditation. I mean, we, we're talking all day long uh, for 10 straight days. This is not just – and so, so I, I start talking about my meditation. And, in the, and this is all, all I knew. But they taught a sweeping technique where you sweep your attention and are with sensations. It's, sorry. So instead of staying with the breath, they do a sort of a body scan? Body scan. Yes. You start the first few days breath just at the nostril. Mm -hmm. And then they take a, a very particular attention to uh, very systematically and slowly through the whole body. And, uh, you know, never having really trained my attention to be composed, doing that really with dedication over a 10-day period, I had, you know, ex powerful experiences. So I'm sharing this with Ajahn Chah. But I, what I didn't say was, though they used to teach you to sweep, I realized that I could sweep on both sides of the body simultaneously. 
And so I sort of felt internally that I think I have a gift for meditation. I think I have some skill here. And I was hoping and assuming and hoping that he would notice and, and you know, notice my skill and, and acknowledge my having come because I so wanted a teacher. And so meanwhile, I'm talking. And while I'm talking to him, suddenly he gets off his chair and down on the floor on all fours and starts sniffing uh, over his whole body like a dog and saying some things, and then all the other people there were laughing. And, it, and seeing this master doing this was funny. So, you know, I was laughing too, but, you know, with my, as I joke, with my Piscean intuition, I could tell he wasn't impressed with my meditation. <laughs> so anyway, he's down there, and I, at some point I said, hey, Doug, will you give me a translation? And, uh, and you know, finally, Ajahn Chah gets up and smiling and, and Doug says, well, he said, uh, you don't have to sniff all around everywhere. Uh, if you understand one thing well, and he pointed at his nostrils, if you understand one thing well, you can understand everything. If you try to understand everything, you might end up not understanding anything thoroughly. Why don't you learn how to be with your breathing? And uh, he said, why don't you go be Somato's friend and let him teach you how to be a monk? Somato was that, his uh, Western, senior Western disciple. And, you know, it, it, it sounds like humiliating, and, and it, this might be hard to explain, but... I felt really touched by Ajahn Chah. He called it stabbing the heart. He, he made a connection. And, uh, and to this day, when I, I can easily, you know, get overwhelmed, I can easily find, you know, the, the challenges we all face and all the different pieces. But to be able to come back to something simple, this body, sitting, breathing, there's an in-breath and an out-breath. And as one understands that impermanent changing nature in a moment, in a moment of, of touching the reality of this moment with, with truth and presence, then the objects or, or the substance of the experience is recognized. But in, in seeing that changing nature, one also then recognizes the context, the ground, the, the awareness the knowingness that has happened within. And to this, to this day, that's still, you know, if you understand one thing well, you understand everything. In a moment to come back to the simplicity of I'm here, I'm sitting, I'm standing. And so it, it started, and I never really seriously worried about Going, going back, I mean, at one point, Ajahn Chah early on asked me, well, what are you going to do after this? And I thought I would get enlightened and then go and be a doctor. And I had this very arrogant thing of how quick I would do it <laughs> as an American. If I can be this peaceful in a 10-day retreat, there's three 10-day periods in a month, 12 months in a year. I can do it in a year. I'll be humble. Let's give myself two years. And I just realized oh, it's a much bigger job than I 
encountered on. But at one point, Ajahn Chah said, what are you going to do? And I said, well, I'm, I'm going to go be a doctor. And then he looked at me and he said, can they cure death? <laughs> and I said, whoa. Well, he said, if you become a doctor of the jitjai, that means your heart. He said, if you become a maljitjai, if you become a doctor of the heart, doctor of the spirit, he says, you will learn uh, the, the cure for birth and death. You will discover that which never dies. And I, I, uh, I always, you know, felt very, very grateful that that route to Oxford led me to the forest, and uh, very grateful for having met Ajahn Chah. Mm. This is a great story, but there's more of the tale to tell. So let me turn back to you, Tennessee. How did the two of you meet, and how did that turn into? A kind of now maybe I'm being journalistically sensationalistic here, but a little bit of a forbidden romance. Um, well, that retreat that Kitty Sorrow talked about that he went on his first retreat. I was actually on that same retreat, so that was a long time ago. So I didn't meet him there exactly, but we heard about this American that had gone off to Thailand. And I remember with my friends, we all thought that sounds really brave, you know. So I realized later that was Kitty Sara. <laughs> so that was when I first heard about him. And then within a number of years, maybe four years, we were both in the monastery. He was in Thailand. I'd been to Thailand, but then Ajahn Chah suggested I stay and train with the nuns there which didn't really work out, and I came back to the UK, partly because I hadn't told my family that I was thinking of perhaps being a nun or my boyfriend who was wanting to be married, So, um, which I realized that wasn't going to happen. So I entered the monastery, and um, but before I did that uh, in the UK, but before I did that, I went to see Ajahn Chah, and uh, he was, again, he'd come back. He'd been twice to England, one in, in 1977 and once in 1979. And so I went to see him the second time he was in Oxford in this place that we were both talking about where we began our meditation retreat experience. And um, he, when I went to pay respects to him, he said, why didn't you stay in Thailand? And I was trying to explain. And the monk that was sitting next to him um, was Kitisaro, and I felt slightly berated by Ajahn Chah because I hadn't stayed in Thailand. And, I, and Kitty Sara said in this sort of accent that I had no idea where this accent came from. <laughs> he was, I understand what you're saying. <laughs> <laughs> and I was like, who's this guy, you know? So that's the second time that, that, that I, well, at least I met him. But um, we knew each other in the monastery. Uh, we were friends. There wasn't any romantic. Which monastery is this? Uh, well, this was in the first monastery that started of Ajahn Charles in West Sussex in the UK. Okay, so you were both living there? We were both. Every, that was the first monastery. There was no other monasteries in the, in the West at that time. So we were part of the first um, community that were rebuilt, were re- renovating this old rundown Victorian house and creating a monastery, which became Chithurst Monastery, which was literally the first monastic residence of the forest school as it came from Thailand to the West. And now there's many in the many Western countries. So um, th- this was 1978, 1979 that we were there. There's about 20 of us. Um, and I was one of four women that had ordained. 
And so we were about five years or so in that particular monastery, and Kirisara then went to become uh, um, an abbot of a monastery in the south of England. I went to the another monastery that started up the north of London to um, start working on developing that. But so we knew each other. We were sometimes on the same work projects or at the same meetings, and I'd listen to uh, Kirisara's talks. But there wasn't a romantic thing between us. We were just good friends, and, you know, we had interests. I mean, you didn't get to speak a lot as monks and nuns. You know, we, we also had separate communities. So I think after about, um, I was in the monastery about 11 years in, um, I had had a, quite a profound struggle with the patriarchy of the system that I was in and the lack of support in many ways historically and within the tradition for um, nuns and for the place of nuns. So I didn't realize that that was part and parcel of what I was moving into when I took the robes. Um, So I was sort of becoming disaffected, not with the teaching or with the dharma or the practice or even my teachers, but there were some aspects of the system that I was becoming disaffected with and quite exhausted dealing with in some ways. So well, can you say more about the like how the patriarchy manifests? I th- yeah. I don't know if how it is in this system but I've yeah. heard in some systems where any any nun no matter how senior you are has to be subordinate to even the youngest monk. Well that's the that's basically written into the tradition, you know, from the early inception of the monastic order of the Buddha. And that was because the the school that we were trained in was quite traditional. That actually was one of the... It wasn't quite so gross as, you know, you are subordinate to the monk, but the way that it works out means that the nuns weren't very empowered in their own community and weren't really... Um, were, in, in many ways, to all intents and purposes, didn't really have much of a, a footing um in the in the in their own ground, in, it's a very hard thing to explain <laughs> when you're in a dominant culture and you're a marginal culture. There are certain ways the power works, and some of it's very subliminally um, operates that you can't even quite see. You know who gets the voice, who gets the decisions, how the decisions get made, who um, who is um, you know um, leads, who doesn't, and so on. Um, and I, I, and also when you're in a marginal community in a in a uh, in a system that where there's a dominant power, it has an impact on that marginal community. It's very hard to be cohesive. It's very hard to draw together. Um, it's quite has a quite a complex dynamic. So what the impact of the nuns' history in in what is actually quite a deeply patriarchal system, which is Buddhism, Buddhist structure in many ways is that it's sort of been quite, it's made the nuns' lineage quite invisible and it's been quite sort of destabilizing. So, for example, one of the most obvious things were that we're talking about Ajahn Chah and a great teacher and a great master. I couldn't tell you an equivalent in that era of a nun. We didn't have any senior nuns. We had no, there weren't any precedents set of, uh, within the female lineage because the nuns were historically, and the ones in Thailand were to all intents and purposes, quite invisible. And in some ways, they saw themselves as a sort of in a role of serving the monks' community. So the monks' community had a lot of high profile. 
So that was the, and that didn't bother me. I, you know, to tell you the truth, I wasn't, re- I didn't even, I was very naive. I didn't even know the word gender. I mean, that sounds, I didn't even think in those terms. I was just there to practice. But the truth was that I, I was, um, I was inducted into a, a patriarchal system and I started to react to what was it. You know, I started to feel this isn't fair. <laughs> this is, there's, there's, Affects from this that are that are very hard to to manage. So then uh, my response was to try and really create ground for the nuns community in in a in a context where we were held quite ambivalently. And I'm not saying any particular monks did that, but the system itself would do that. We had a lot of teachings and a lot of support for many of the monks. Um, but there's also a certain way that it's hard to understand, like in the same way when we're white people, it's hard to understand what it is like to have the experience of being in a, in a person of color community in a, in a system that preferences, you know, um, white power. So these are, these are sort of awakenings that, are, that happen, I think, um, more when you're in a marginal space than when you're not. So struggling against that, I think the whole point of um, what, what I was trying to say in Nita was that I was getting a bit weary of because of that struggle that seemed to be so pervasive in my experience. And at the same time that I was feeling that, Kitty Saro had um, done a year retreat on his own. And in some ways, the way he talked about that afterwards, that he began to feel that his connection with the Dharma was was deepening in a way that it wasn't it wasn't that it wasn't so much the connection I'm sorry I'm speaking for you and you correct me um with the that particular monastic form but there was a sort of more independent experience of the dharma that was emerging so in some ways if i look back in context i mean we both left over 25 years ago it was quite a long time to and we it's true we fell in love and we left and to be together that was the spark but I think in our own individual journeys, we were sort of outgrowing the form. And I'm not saying that to say that the form was something that, I mean, that could sound arrogant, and I don't mean to sound arrogant because it's a, that's a very profound form to, to train in, the monastic form. But I think for our own individual journeys, it had come to the place that we'd outgrown it. And I think it's quite hard to leave that. We were like a tribe. It's hard to explain how profoundly connected we were we were this we were the ones that started this whole thing we were the ones that were pulling together to hold this this brilliant enlightenment path that we felt was like the way (laughs) and we were very bonded together and certainly I was in the nuns community because we'd struggled so hard so it wasn't a small thing to leave you know and we were both seniors in each of our communities, myself and the nuns and Kitty Sara was an abbot and very highly respected in the monks community. So it wasn't a small decision. It wasn't like, oh, you know, this doesn't have consequences. Um, so when we first started after Kitty Sara came out of this year-long silent retreat, he'd been in the forest at Chithurst Monastery in the UK, and i just come back from pilgrimage in India and I started to realize I think I didn't really want to accept it, but I started to realize my monastic career was finishing. You know, I, re- I remember standing, watching this sunset on the edge of the ocean in India, 
And I could see as the sun was setting, I mean, it was quite metaphorically, I could see my whole time in the monastery was finishing. And, but I felt this tremendous loyalty that I should try and stay because of the tribe. So I went back with this intention of to to the monastery, like, I'm going to really try and help and support the nuns and help support the high ordination, which was was not allowed at that point, was being blocked. High ordination. High ordination. Well, the sort of ordination that the Buddha set up that historically so-called got lost for a thousand years, which was part of that ordination gives nuns a real legal status and a real sense of profound belonging in the lineage. And so the struggle to reinstate that, which has happened, but in that the time that I was in there, it was almost like you don't even mention this territory but I was so I felt like I should really stay to try and that battle, you know, to hold that battle for the nuns. And then Kitisaro, I think, for his own reasons, felt very loyal to the community. But the truth was, when we started to speak about our experiences and what was happening, it was almost like something in our the chemistry changed. And very, very quickly, we realized we were falling in love, you know, and we hadn't really spoken about it. And it was quite taboo. Um, we hadn't touched each other or anything. But then at some point, um, you know, there was this recognition that we were sort of probably going to leave and um, to be together. So um, Kitty Saro mentioned this to our abbot. And um, he didn't have a very positive response. He said, you know, we're just thinking about this. We're just talking about this. And so um, we got put in different monasteries and it got a little bit hysterical in the community for a while. And it was all very, you know, quite turbulent and difficult. But the upshot was that, that I, I disrobed. I realized it's fi- whatever happens, it's sort of finished. <laughs> and then Kirisara went back to see Ajahn Chah, who at that time had been um, sick for many years, for 10 years. And he was unable to speak. He was um, paralyzed. He had a stroke of some sort, quite severe. Okay, so I wanted to sit with him and really feel, is this the right decision? And I'd gone, I, so I left the monastery and I'd gone back to Ireland where my father and his family came from and staying there in Dublin. And then on, I think it was New Year's Eve, Kittisar had decided that he was going to disrobe and he disrobed and he flew back from Thailand and I met him at Dublin Airport, and he had this big bunch of Thai orchids. <laughs> and, and this is a pre-9-11 world, so at the airport there weren't, there weren't any people sort of looking for people's passports or anything like that. You know, the, the whole of the Irish airport was having a party. So Kitty Sarah just walked off the plane from Thailand and walked through all this. There wasn't any security. And then he gave me these, this bunch of orchids. And then for the first time... We touched, held each other's hands. And then we went and stayed in Dublin, and then we went to live in the west coast of Ireland for a while. We had no clue what we were going to do. We didn't know what to do. Um, we didn't, I didn't even know how to open it. I was so naive. I didn't have to drive. I didn't have to open a bank account. I, you know, I was really, in the worldly way, completely, I didn't know how to do anything, actually. And so one of our benefactors, who was this wonderful um, Thai woman, who was a princess, Thai princess. She was really upset that we had disrobed, and she came to see us. And um, she was saying, you know, how you can talk about all this letting go and all of this non-attachment, and here you are going off together like this. You're 
huge disappointment to me and all of this dharma you've been teaching and look what you've done. And and I remember sitting there thinking, oh, God, you know. So I, I said, I'm, I'm really sorry. You know, this just what's happened and she said well anyway she said now I've got that off my chest how can I help you (laughs) (laughs) so she set us up and she really did help us she gave us a place to live in the UK for a while she asked us to teach our first retreat together which we did and then we started getting invitations you know to teach here to teach there and then we got the invitation to South Africa where we went um, in 1994 just after the liberation and we became, they once, would we help them there at this center? And we said, okay, there was, didn't seem to be anywhere else to go. We were, you know, just all a bit fraught in the UK. People were quite reactive around us. So we stayed and we taught there. And we were guiding teachers of their center for about seven years. And then we started our own project, our own nonprofit. And we got involved in the AIDS crisis. Well, that hit. You could not get involved. It was happening all around us. In South Africa. Yeah, the pandemic. Yeah, it was huge. So we started, um, initiated and fundraised for various programs and projects. You know, so we were there for many years and still involved. And then more recently, we've sort of, we've done a lot of teaching in a lot of different situations, a lot of retreats, a lot of our own retreats, a lot of deep retreats um, on that mountain that Kirisara said in KwaZulu-Natal. And then uh, we started to be invited to come and work in America. So we've been working here on off now for about 10 years. I was invited to help with the Community Dharma Leader Program at Spirit Rock, which was the first real um, large program that they did where they focused very deliberately on increasing diversity. So that was a learning curve, you know, like to come into the U.S. and... Um, Anyway, that's just stop there. It just got so, so many stories. But yeah, so anyway, here we are. <laughs> I want to go back in time for a second to when you you'd spent more than a decade, both of you, mm. in robes doing deep meditation practice. Mm. And then you found yourself in the crucible of a romantic mm. relationship. Mm. And you know, I'm married. We fight sometimes. Everybody I know who's married uh, or in a in a serious romantic relationship there's conflict it's difficult how did that go for you guys well it was challenging i mean uh, as she was saying we were in this monastery and i weren't planning on falling in love and leaving and i had uh as I mentioned uh, in passing earlier, I, I used to be a wrestling champion, and so. Uh, uh, but then, uh, early in my monastic life in Thailand, I got very sick, and uh, almost died of typhoid, typhoid fever, and so then uh, for very uh, many years I was really ill, but then I, I, I had been like three years lying down. Because uh, I was so ill, a lot of internal inflammation, bleeding, incredible weakness. But it gave me a lot of opportunity to cultivate the subtle abiding. Uh, what do you, the subtle abiding? Subtle abiding of uh, just the inner, inner energetic world. And to, I mean, learning how to die is, is quite important when you're one thing. I had been very willful. So when you 
use volition, will. When, when, when you're focusing on something, you can focus on a sensation or focus on a sound or focus on a thought or focus on a circumstance. Whatever one focuses on is part of the changing world, the, the world that we know, the sights, sounds, smells, tastes. Uh, uh, and, and, and so, uh, but when one, as Ajahn Chah was saying, if you know one thing well, you understand everything. All the things you can focus on are shifting and changing. Uh, uh, when we see that changing nature and start to hold it more lightly, or another way to put it, when we hold it, as if it's solid and we take our health, our success. You know, all those years I was striving for success, I was imagining I was going to get there. That somehow you get to a place and, well, I've arrived. Not realizing that those successful moments, like when I won a national championship, yippee, my hand is raised up, mom takes the picture, there it is, I'm a national champion. But that actually that's uh, ephemeral. It's not to take away from what it, what it is, but it is ephemeral. And so as one starts to, to see that changing nature, then you start to realize, wow, that change is happening within a sphere. It's happening within the heart of awareness, within awareness. When you get really sick, one of the blessings of being sick, if one can open to it, I mean, the Buddha called sickness a heavenly messenger because there's a message in it if we accept it, that this body's on loan. Well, yeah, let's look after it as good as we can. But when you're really weak, then it's not hard to soften your hold on volition because anything you try to do is so exhausting. Even to hold a conversation, you still have to hold it. When you're lying down a lot and, and working on each out-breath, letting go and letting the ground hold you up, letting the pillow, the bed hold you up, and just as the ground holds us and you're not having to strain, as you soften volition, one can allow the awareness to hold one. So when I say these subtle inner realms, I had a lot of opportunity to practice dying, so to speak. And as they say, if you die before you die, then when you die, you don't have to die. <laughs> if you practice dying, you can touch into that part of us that doesn't die. That is, that is. It's just this home ground. So I'm very comfortable there. Uh, touching into the, that, and 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 but then you know part of being being married is you know is, is like coming back out into this world of of interaction and we didn't plan it but it was like we knew we were supposed to be married before we'd even we had as she mentioned never even touched each other so how does one explain that I mean we're falling in love but there was also this sense of destiny a lot of my spiritual practice has been devotional, offering myself into the, 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 the this this ground and and almost feeling like this is what we're supposed to do, and you know and so here we are t- together and you know we would go into a grocery store you know as a monk you don't choose this and that you just get offered your meal for the day and we would look up at all these choices and what do you want what do you want we we didn't know. But we, what we did share, we shared a deep love for contemplation of life, a deep love for the practices of composure, the practices of virtue, the practices of investigation, 
that when one deeply looks into things and lets go, one realizes that we all have this 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 common footing, this common ground, this ground of the heart of awareness. And so we we just, you know, began. And so already, in a way, we both realized later, we're fortunate that we didn't get married till much later. So I think I was like, what, 40 or something? Yeah, you were 40, I was 36. Yeah, and so we we knew how to give each other space to recover and, and, then, and, then, and then to share. And we had this principle in the Dhamma, suffering is not just a bad thing. Ajahn Chah would say when people were suffering and complaining about it, he'd look at you and say, if it was so bad, the Buddha wouldn't call it a noble truth. And, and he wasn't being sadistic, but the idea is that if our suffering can be open to, deepen our capacity to be with the difficulty of life, then in giving that space and allowing that alchemy of letting our awareness touch and breathe with and be with the struggles, what do I do here? I don't want it this way. Or That by, by honoring those moments, there's the possibility of illumination, of understanding of how we perpetuate this distress and how when we see that grasping and rejecting, when we soften that, we can touch into a core. So we we would try, you know, take us some time, but try with each other to also in those flash flash points. And so we definitely have had our share of uh, of arguments, and um, but we we knew how to recover and we knew how to let go and forgive and 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 begin again. And so you know, I in a way, Tanisra's really. My inclination my was more hermit-like. You know, I did two year-long silent retreats. I'm comfortable. When I do that, my mind gets big and everyone's inside me. And so the world of contact is, is much more challenging, much more uh, challenging. And I feel, you know, Tanisha has really helped me, uh, you know, n- negotiate the realm of interaction with living beings and start... I had been so used to recharging from the spirit. But now through her help, I'm learning how to appreciate what's called the third refuge in Buddhism called Sangha or spiritual community, learning how our connection with our good friends, with people of integrity, how uh, how the connection with our kindred spirits, how that nourishes too, nourishes us a lot too. And uh, so we, we, we each help each other. Tennessee, I'm interested in the flashpoints that mm. your partner uh, just referenced. Just, just to take it out of the theoretical for a second, and I'm asking for those of us who are who have done way less meditation than you guys and are in relationships where there are flashpoints. How can you take, or how do how do you take uh, all of this? wisdom you've generated and insight you've generated through practice into a dispute over who's going to do the dishes. <laughs> yeah, yeah, I I I um I think that's a good question. Um what I what I feel is important is to I, I think that for me what became important was to realize 
how we've were conditioned in our families in different ways in in dealing with anger or dealing with with these moments of conflict and i think i didn't really um i think it really helped helped me in our moments of conflict um for example i can remember an incident where we had an argument i don't even know what it was about it was about something and i realized in my growing up in in the in the household that i was in that to express um anger w- was not a very safe thing to do so i would tend to retreat and go quiet and go quiet and feel resentful and kitty sara in his household um it was there was much more um like just keep probing and questioning and what's going on and what's going on so his style of in conflict and where he, how where he would move to resolve it would actually exacerbate and make my feeling of being frozen even worse so at some point i could just see these are two conditionings he's come from a family where how he approaches conflict is completely opposite to what i do and in the some ways when we hit those moments we're not speaking the same language we we're stuck in a pattern in a less than optimum pattern to find resolution and to move forward so for me it really helped that to sort of be able to in that moment to name say we're caught you know this court let's take a pause let's take a this let's see um and i think that was quite a breakthrough moment um in our relationship when we could actually start to identify and see and then pause and start to understand and then talk you know like what happens for you when when you're in this place where well, i feel like this and this you is how you could tell us the story like in south africa around the tip or something yes yeah yeah so um yeah he's t- telling about a story in 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 the in the patterning so i think being able which i can say in a minute but i think that's being able to see our patterns that we have different patterns and different conditionings and different ways we've been in our family helps to give a little more understanding i think we need to understand where we're coming from because when you go in those patterns it's a bit like you can't see anymore you're just defending your territory you know and and they are like you say they are flashpoints about you know like who's doing the washing up and you know how do you uh, do you get just to name you know i'm actually feeling this now in some families you never say that so the other the other partner is completely guessing what's up i just feel you kind of going emotionally cold but i can't understand what's happening um so you know to be able to talk through um or to name what's happening for you you know like or what you need you know actually right now i really be helpful if i could have some space um and so that you're so that there's some way that you can start to understand where each of you are coming from what your needs are in that moment and to to also look at what can actually trigger um uh, flashpoints and i think also because we're conditioned and we come and some of our condition i also realize culturally that we come from different places can, in our conditioning and so sometimes there's like slightly different misunderstandings like coming from the south and coming from and from a a a sort of background that was quite resourced was different for me when i came coming from a very deeply working class unresourced background with, that had a lot of poverty in it and struggle in it especially from my father's side from dublin that there were very different feelings and relationships to something like money and resources and how you make decisions around things like that and um for example as kitty sorry saying about 
a moment when we were in South Africa. And um, I think one of the things that meditation does for you is you get to really see those patterns very deeply, not just react and you're just living them out, but you get to really pause and contemplate and see the mind states and the feelings involved. And at the depth of those patterns, some very, very painful feelings that, that are there that are connected maybe even with trauma, which are, which are hard feelings to tolerate. So my deep patterning in relationship and in contact is when I feel threatened or when I feel like I'm being confronted um, is that I will go into a freeze mode and just sort of like get very um, cold and frozen and... And I, in, in a way, I'm not deliberately trying to freeze anyone out, but it's like I'm just trying to survive, you know, and I get very disassociated and I can't even think very clearly. So that I've, I can really track through meditation. I can feel the chemistry in the brain change. I can feel, you know, I can feel it. And I, I'm in the, I need a lot of care in this moment because my pattern's been activated. So in that, you know, and it is in deep relationships that our patterns get activated. You know, this is the ground of our work. It's not just as you said in theory or when we sit on our cushion we can you know we can take a pause but it's actually in the moment in the heat of the moment when you're in your pattern you know and then you then you're there and you you know and then you and you can't really think straight and then you're defensive so those are the moments that are really interesting to to contemplate we need we really need to see them this is the value of relationship and close relationship so Kitty, so I was talking about an incident when we were in South Africa and I think the work in South Africa, where we were in such a deeply traumatized field, um, where there was, there was a lot of violence and you know a lot of unresourced people, um, and the effects af- of apartheid was so profoundly shattering into in the, the fabric of the society that it would really you know it was really overwhelming to absorb some of that and work with some of that, and we'd sort of decided. And therefore, sometimes triggering in moments our patterns, you know, the, the least optimum ways that we could be to, to deal with it. So we actually, uh, some of the stress would sort of ricochet off each other. And it's amazing that we, I think we had a, a depth of practice to actually be able to hold ourselves in the, in the context of what we were working with. But anyway, at some point, sometimes we say we need a break. <laughs> we just need to... You know, unfortunately, South Africa is extraordinarily beautiful and there are so many beautiful places to go. And one of our favorite places is to go to the ocean, is the Indian Ocean, which is magnificent, and to just walk by the ocean. So we went on this small holiday and, and I think I was very activated and we were at a restaurant and, um, you know, just and somehow we got into some argument, a stupid argument over a tip you know, how much we were going to freaking leave for this tip, you know, and it's like, who cares? What does it matter? But for some reason, and I think this was like our different economic backgrounds. I got really, and in, you know, when I looked at it afterwards, it was about, I was feeling insecure. I just, you know, I felt very disorient. You know, it's just like I was, I felt very destabilized, I think. And then somehow it all came to this tip. I didn't want to leave. You know, and I think also in American culture, there's just naturally this sense of, you know, there's just a bit, there's this generosity. And I'd come from this culture where it's just, you just hold, you know. So I just felt, I felt offended by this tip, you know. And it wasn't my Buddhist best side. It was just me and my sort of tribal conditioning, you know. So I could feel all this, you know, you know, and, and Kitty Sarah was like, 
his tendency, what's wrong? What, you know, something's wrong, like nothing's wrong. <laughs> I'm fine. It's like, so here we are, this is the pattern. You know, I'm withdrawing and he's like, you know, what's wrong? And don't, you know, like I just want to be left alone. So, but I was, I was meditating on this and we were sitting there and I just had this, this feeling at the depth of this pattern was this, you know, it's like, it's Paul, I just want to, it's night and I just want to walk into the ocean and disappear. It was like quite, it's almost suicidal. It's like, I just want to not be here because that's the depth, you know, underneath the presenting argument, it ricocheted into this very deep place of like, I can't cope, and this is, you know, I'm just going to curl up and go. And so I was just sitting there, and, and, the, and the way it manifests was this sort of freeze, and I just freeze. And for him, on the outside of that, it feels very personal. It's like, you know, like, well, you, you know, it's rejecting. It's like I've done something wrong. I feel you're judging me. You know, this is how these conflicts go. And, and I internally, my experience was I'm drowning here. I'm drowning. I can't find my ground. So, and I couldn't speak, I can't find the words, because I've sort of gone into a very early place. Mm. And I'm just sitting there, and I'm like, you know, and I'm just, and I'm also meditating, because I'm a meditator, so I'm like, wow, this is really painful. So, you know, in the, in the therapy world, they call this being, the, you know, touching the unbearable wound to being. There's these wounds that we have that are very deep places in our being that we, we defend against. But in relationships, sometimes intimate relationship, they get activated because that's where they got, that's where the wound came from was in, you know, deep intimacy in our primary patterning as we were in de developing pre-verbally. And I'm not saying it's necessarily a parental fault. You know, this is the wounds that happen even, for example, if you're not fed on time. You know, that little baby doesn't know, I'll be back in half an hour. All it feels is I'm abandoned. No one's here for me. And that, those learnings go very, very deeply in our system. So, you know, as we meditate, some of these become more conscious to us. For, for most people that have no access, they just get repressed and there's the affect. You feel depressed, you feel angry, you feel irritable, you don't know why. But as a meditator, you're feeling more deeply. So I'm meditating and I've got frozen spikes and, you know, it's amazing Kitty so I could just sit there. And he's a, he's a brilliant meditator, so he's just sitting there breathing while I'm kind of feeling what I'm feeling. And this is all happening in the restaurant? Yeah. And it, well, we actually walked down and we were just sitting by the beach and it's dark and, you know, I'm sort of sitting there like... And at a certain point, Kitty Sarah so just... He's not, you know, the, the expert... He, he doesn't need an explanation. He just held my hand. Which was a really good move. <laughs> and so you just sit there, and I could feel just like, you know, it's not a moment to have to explain everything. This is the moment just to show solidarity. And there's moments that we can do that for each other in, our, in these relationships. It's like, yeah, I'm pissed off at you. This hurt. This feels really personal. You know, my, I'm activated. I'm, it's just like you just say, this is dukkha. You know, you just you just That's sitting the there. Word yeah. for suffering. Yeah, okay. sorry. This is this is painful. This is painful. You just sit, hold hands, and then, you know, gradually you start. I still start to join the human realm. You can come out of that vortex. You know, so it's just, you know, just one way <laughs> of working. Mm. I want to bring you in on this, Kitasara. Um so I'm hearing two things there, but fact check me on this. One is 
implied in what you said there is that so being a monk or nun can be a very powerful way to practice to sort of mainline the dharma mm-hmm. but being in a relationship is also it sounds like you're saying a great way to practice mm-hmm. and that one of the benefits of bringing meditation into a relationship is that you can see that while it all feels really personal and that we can't help that that at some really important fundamental level it's not personal it's mm-hmm. these two hurricanes coming Mm -hmm. up against one another, two forces of nature, two deeply ingrained patterns Mm -hmm. that are as impersonal as a weather system may be Mm -hmm. coming up against one another. And, of course, there's going to be wind shear. Mm -hmm. Um, But (laughs) that doesn't necessarily – I don't know if I'm using my meteorological Mm -hmm. terms correctly because, of course, (laughs) hurricanes don't usually bump against one another. (laughs) Anyway, my apologies to my meteorological uh, uh, brethren here and, and sisters right here at ABC News. You get the point. Um, that that you can start after the initial upset, you can start taking it less personally because you see that we're just acting out our patterns. Yeah. Is it, is that yeah. Beautifully put. Mm-hmm. Yes. Yeah, right Absolutely. on. And one of the advantages of a contemplative background, uh, training in meditation, is I like to think of it as cultivating primary relationship. You're, you know, it's fine. Wouldn't it be nice if we... Oh, live together in harmony. I mean, that's a lovely thought. But in the meditative training, you're learning how to to relate to what I'm calling primary relationship, how to be with sensation, how to be with feeling, how to be with the the essential elements of experience, of being uh, a being here in this mysterious uh, realm that, that we call our life. And so as you're developing skill of relating, even in your own space, actually in the, uh, in the uh, so-called relations with others around one, it's those very same principles. You're, you're learning how to breathe, bring contact with, with a, another person through how you see them, how you feel them, how you connect with them, bringing them into your heart. So this, uh, this, uh, this training of how to the training of attention, the training of inquiry, the training of recognition when there's a snag, when there's some tension, when there's some friction of how to say, oh, what's happening here? That is, uh, that is uh, really helpful. And, um, and I, I think the fact that we, we each knew how nourishing it is when you have space to, and permission to withdraw your attention for moments, for times, for periods from external responsibilities, jobs, this and that. When, when, you, when you have permission to just let that go for a while, while one composes oneself, while one calms down, while one centers oneself, and that from that refreshment, from that grounding in a more true or skillful relationship with reality, then one begins again to open up and gather in and revisit one's relationship with the external world. So we were, you know, using using that in our relationship with each other, and that was really, really helpful. Stay tuned. More of our conversation is on the way after this. You teach retreats all over the world now, mm-hmm. and you mentioned before, Kitazar, that there's a devotional aspect mm. to your teaching Absolutely. and the way you run these retreats. I have a bit of a negative reaction 
when I go to retreats and people are bowing to the Buddha at the front of the room as a Western secular, mm. you, know, you know, my parents are scientists. My mm. wife is a scientist, as I've often joked, <clears throat> not good enough at math to be a scientist, but, you know, I, I, I have a lot of respect for it. So those are retreats I've been to where there isn't a, a pronounced devotional emphasis um, that, that people do the bowing to the Buddha because there's a Buddha mm. in the meditation hall. But I think you guys do even more than that. Well, we do a lot. And, yeah, so and what I, does that look I, like I and why? I appreciate the question, and it's, I think, a, basically a misunderstanding to devotion. Devotion means dedicated to and devoted to, and we, we're, we're, we're devoted to all sorts of things already. People say, I don't have any faith. You know, we have a lot of faith. We have faith in our views, faith in our righteous opinions. We bow down and worship my, my idea that I'm right and you're wrong. And the, the, the external bowing is just a symbol. Anybody who's really bowing to the Buddha and, and, and imputing all this magical power to the Buddha and, and, and projecting the, the sacred out there is is missing the essence of the devotion as it was taught in Buddhist practice. To, to be devoted to, uh, for a contemplative path, to be transformative. There has to be a shifting of our, our de- devotion from the status quo of our commitment to and blind obedience to and belief in the, the values, structures, the views, the opinions, the biases, which don't even seem like biases. They're just the truth. When, our, when we start getting devoted to the notion of, well, well, I, I, like for example, when I had all of those scrapbooks my mother had made of me winning all those five-time Mid-South champions and my national champion and my Rhodes Scholarship, and on paper I should have been really happy, but I knew I was suffering like mad. And so I realized, well, I've been running this show, my own show, the way I want to do it, trying to get to success, and I've made myself miserable and distressed. So the idea that, that I, I met a wise teacher that, that, that said, hey, you're generating all this suffering through your misunderstanding of how this life actually is, and that you can also devote yourself to what's called the Dharma, the way things are. And that there are practices of training attention and inquiry that can help you sort to realize that we have at our core a, a spring, a source of what's called Buddha. But it means uh, reflectiveness, inner awareness, inner listening, and the external Buddha image. And even the historical Buddha, who is an amazing example uh, living with integrity and the wisdom and compassion. In his teachings, he's continually pointing back to each individual. You discover the timeless Buddha, the real Buddha, the real living, timeless awareness in your own heart. So, so the, the bowing uh, is a, just an external, symbolic way of, in a, in a moment, finding your body, Finding your your bowing, uh, finding your thought, finding your awareness, and to take your head and touch the ground is a symbolic way of seeing, for a moment, can I take my opinions and not trash them, but realize that an opinion, if we're honest, 
I am right is resonating in the mind and then there's silence after it. And yet the awareness remains. No, 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 this is no joke. My way is right and the way they're doing it is ridiculous. And you hear that well up in the mind, that sound. And yet that sound then as it subsides, if one's devoted to truth, one can listen into and start to recognize that dimension of our being that remains, that is timeless, that is what's called the heart, the, or as Ajahn Chah would say, the knowing. Now, in a bowing practice, you're learning to touch something like your hands together, a thought, and touching the ground is symbolic for when you let a thought dissolve. You're letting it fall back, so to speak. It's an analogy into the ground of being, into this listening, this context, this what the Buddha called the matrix uh, of awareness. So actually devotional practice is a, a powerful practice of training yourself not only to hold focus but also to soften and let go and begin to notice the, the root condition, the fundamental condition. I'm just trying with words to point to something that's really hard to point to with words, so I don't know if it's, if it's getting through. But, but the, the bowing practice, in a sense, is a returning to the ground. So ironically, rather than bowing to a Buddha image, you're bowing to your own deepest nature, every bow. And uh, having spent three years lying down, and having spent years so attached to volition and willpower and, and with hard work making it. And I love hard work. But if one only knows the forcing, the forcing keeps you on, on the level of the temporal conditioning. Only through also learning to soften does one notice that all these experiences of pleasure and pain are happening within a, an unmoving, timeless ground of, uh, of being. The bowing practice also helps us know that. And then as you come up, so you're honoring the, the stuff of our life, all the circumstance, experiences, thought, but through devotional practice, one also is plunging into and honoring the great mystery of this silent awareness that's holding it all. So uh, what does it look like? The bowing, is it simply just bowing from the waist toward uh, the statue of the well, Buddha? There's, or you... there's um, different traditions that do it in different ways. How do you do it? Well, both, both, well, because we bring different traditions together. There's, as you say, that in Thailand, Southeast Asia, traditional Buddhist, you're kneeling and then you just bow from the waist down. You bring your head to the ground. In China, in Tibet, and Mahayana countries, Southeast um, Korea, and so on. Then there's from the standing. And so you're holding, um, you bring your hands, you know, sometimes you point your, your, your hands to the head. These are the three karmas. These are the three energy streams through which we generate action and result. So you touch the head, the mind. The mouth, the speech, the heart, the, the feeling nature, and then you bring that to the ground. So I think it's, I, I, you know, I can really hear that it's, um, it's very difficult for us in the West because a lot of religi religiosity is connected historically with um, 
you know, quite frankly, ways of trying to control and oppress often. And I think the rational scientific movement from the European Enlightenment is a breaking away from that historical um, shaping of Christian of through the Judeo-Christian um, culture that we're in, where things like bowing are seen as suspect, are seen as um, somehow um, almost abdicating um, the rational and the um, empirical and your own empowerment. So there's, you know, and there's a lot of very badly taught religious teachings. So the secular movement, in a way, has enabled a lot of the core practices of the Dharma to, to be accessible to people without them feeling that they're taking on some religious system. And I, I think that's very understandable and very fair enough. But I think I would question the limits of the scientific in terms of when it's not, um, when it when it's when it takes its when it sees reality always as an object to itself, always looking at how much you can extract um, from the objective world and from nature, and doesn't really have a sense of the subjectivity that Kirisara is pointing to is of consciousness itself um, and how everything from an older, more indigenous worldview, how everything is infused with consciousness, how everything is in, we're in a web of life, how, um, how there's, a, there's a great subjectivity as well in all beings. Not everything is an object that we're looking at, but there's the subjectivity of, of awareness and consciousness. And that when we see from that subjectivity, when we really feel into and honor the conscious beingness of, of all things, including the material realm, then there's a sort of sacredness that's infused within life. And I think one of the problems that, we're, that, we're, that we have in our contemporary worldview where we're in a very extractive, extractivism culture um, where we've seen nature as something to dominate and where that's led us to the, the planetary crisis that we're in, the planetary emergency we're, that we're in, that, that science in a way, although it can offer technology and solutions, it can't really offer the wisdom of infusing a world with, us, with, with a kind of sacredness of Mother Nature where we would be in relationship to all things with a deep level of respect, particularly nature... So for me, that bow, it's not necessarily about the religiosity, and it doesn't matter if you bow or not. I mean, that's just a form. Who cares, ultimately? But it's like, can we bow in the heart? Can we be humble now as humans and realize we've screwed everything up? You know, I mean, we've really screwed everything up, that we're actually um, decimating. You know, we're in the middle of the sixth extinction. We're losing the ice caps. we the oceans are dying off, you know, something is, this has come as a result of human actions, something, we're out of harmony somewhere. So I think the bow is a very important gesture, and that's the very, very th first thing I saw Ajahn Chah do when I first literally saw him, and the first thing he did was bow before a Buddha statue. I didn't even know that was a Buddha, I just thought it was some, you know, Asian artifact that was looked nice, you know. But that bow, I just thought that's a perfect expression of how to be in this world. There's this deep sense of reverence. Um, so for me, it's, it's less important ultimately about the religious forms or whether we do devotional practices, whether we chant some mantras. 
It's more about whether we're secular Buddhists or not, or we don't call ourselves Buddhists, we're just doing these practices because they're mindfulnessly based and they reduce stress. It's like, how can we inculcate a sense of the sacred, of reverence, and bring that into relationship with nature, our nature, our bodies, our relationships, um, with everything that we're using and doing now? Because I feel that's sort of very critical for our... Um, for our, you know, for our, for all of us in in our ability to continue living in, in in relationship to the very systems that are supporting us, if, you know, of nature herself. I get hung up a little bit on the word sacred mm. because it has metaphysical overtones to me, and I, mm. I mean, I'm not a big fan of, at least for myself, of you know, engaging in practices where there's uh, uh, where I'm asked to believe in things that that are not provable and so th- so th- when i hear sacred i feel like oh right. were we getting into some sort of metaphysical realm so what, here so what word when you when you say if you're you're mysterious maybe yeah mysterious that's fine mysterious yeah it's the semantics i i think you know for me what's what if you like you know if you're by the ocean or you're working in a beautiful forest or you look at something that really catches your breath you know, um, and touches you in a certain way, what would you call that, you know, that feeling in the heart that evokes a sense of reverence, evokes a sense of awe? Oh, that's, that's a word I'm comfortable if, with. If you oh. look at the stars at night into the vastness and you think, what are we doing here? Yes. So that's perfect. Sacred is just a word I like. I, awe, I mystery. I was in the Amazon recently, yeah. um, and uh, there's no light down there, very little light, yeah. and... Uh, at night, it really felt like you were on the prow of a spaceship moving yes. through space. Yes. It, it, it felt like you were really in amongst these stars. Yeah. And then you've, I, I felt a very genuine, uncontrived, infinitely renewable, because every time I looked up in the yes. sky, I felt it again, sense of awe of, wow, I am really small. And this uh, this universe is vast. Extraordinary. Um so, it's that, that's uh, yes. the feeling, and, and that's also, I mean, I, sorry, I know Kim starts popping. <laughs> We've also been in the Amazon and had that experience with, in the jungle and the sounds and, the, and, yeah, so I think it's the feeling. How can we bring that feeling and not just attribute to religiosity? Yes. Say so this is yes. a deep reclamation um, that can inform science. There's nothing wrong with science, but can guide science. Yeah, and in an era, and I think this is what you were saying before, in an era, well, we've always been in this era, but in a in a species where we're stuck kind of in our head a lot, where we're on the surface of things, you know, we're, we're, we're seeing the, our thoughts, well, to the extent, we're stuck in our thoughts, in our stories, in our emotions, and very infrequently unless we've been taught some meditation practices dropping back to see that it's all playing out in this mysterious backdrop of for lack of a better word consciousness awareness that's the, the what bowing, we, it can that's get, what yes. i'm calling i mean yes. there's such a thing i think we can agree where one's relationship with with this mystery of life is extraordinarily distorted where uh, the Buddha has an image where you're taking a bubble to be the whole ocean. <laughs> a bubble might be a mood, uh, a thought form that, that, that's righteously telling one to go kill someone else or even righteous or, or, or despairingly telling one, I don't deserve to be here and we kill ourselves. And it seems like everything. 
And yet when there's a possibility of starting to notice, when you notice that that thought as it changes, you're start, just as you then realize, whoa, as you were looking up at that night sky, that there's a whole shift of consciousness. And one is, is touching into uh, a different, a more profound relationship to what is. For the, you can use the word sacred for that if one wishes, but it is a rather than what you could call a separative consciousness where one's totally believing in the the separate entities of this and that. One starts to get a sense of being part of something vast and mysterious and experientially even getting a sense of how it's all interflowing. For example, if one is in a forest and you, you realize that, you know, so-called me doesn't exist unless I can breathe in. And what, you're, what I'm breathing is what the trees are breathing out. What I breathe out, the trees breathe in. And when one has these experiences of widening and, and realizing that we're part of something uh, vast and mysterious, to me, s- sacred can. It doesn't, it, it is, it, there's unfortunate connotations, perhaps, with that word that you, you're experiencing, but it can remind us of, of returning to a... Uh, a reverence, an awe, a freshness with this life that helps us break out of these conditioned responses where we're just perpetuating uh, problems. And it's, it's, in that, it's in that vein. The Buddha taught that just blind following of rites and rituals, and yes, bowing can be that, chanting can be that. Uh, and, and as Tanisra was saying, religion has been taught sometimes in ways that are so oppressive and shaming and yet one can throw out the whole proverbial baby with the bath, uh, you know, water. And using some of these structures like a ceremony, ancient ceremony, where for a time you're not just being the separate person. You're using recitation of word phrases and intentionalities to, to uh, honor that there's a vastness here. And, and and not only just to believe in something one doesn't know, if if one even starts, you know, in a moment listening to how sounds keep dissolving in an ever-present silence, not a dead silence, but a listening silence, mm-hmm. a, a a a and that listening part of our being doesn't have a wall. <laughs> how how big is our listening? It it's measureless. Then we start to find ourselves like you in the Amazon, realizing, whoa, look at this sky. As sometimes spiritual practices call the great return, as we start to realize there's another plunging into nature that happens when we, uh, when we honor that this body, these sensation and these thoughts, are, if we honor them and listen into them, are, into them, are portals into a, 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 a wondrous, uh, wondrous revelation. Uh, so uh, that's how we were taught, and I'm very grateful for that, for that of using uh, religious structures as tools rather than as ultimate truths that you believe in. Very reductively, the bowing sounds like it could, again, this is simplistic, kind of get you out of your head. Exactly. Yeah. <laughs> very well put. <laughs> Um, in our remaining time, the, you touched on this, uh, but I, I want to go back to it. As I understand it, a big emphasis in your retreat teaching has been climate change. Uh, and, and, or 
I don't know if it's all of your retreats, but yeah. I know some people who went to a retreat recently that you were yeah. at, yeah. or maybe it was the one you've just finished teaching where yeah. the cl- the climate was a big part of it. So I'm just what how does why and how does that look on a retreat? In, in our training, we we do a two year training. It really is to support for meditation teachers for yes practitioners as well, um, but it is for them to meet our. The, the multifaceted crises that we're 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 in the fa- in the midst of now, dismembering political systems, um, the devastation of our you know biosphere through the warming of the of the warming um, of the planet and the um, devastation of biodiversity, all of those issues and more. Um, so it is really you know to have some working knowledge and some ability to help. Um, guide people at this time and support uh, support people. You know, some of the deep, like we've just taught a month long depth meditation retreat. We don't necessarily bring a lot of climate issues into the retreat. We might um, refer to it, or we're looking at helping people resource themselves and build reliance, uh, internal um, capacity, you know, reliance on their capacity to meet our challenging circumstances, but we don't shy away from it either. So for for um, us in our, in our approach, it's been, you know, the Dharma is about, the Dharma's teachings of awakening is about being realistic. You know, we're not here to just try and spiritualize ourselves outside of this world and sit on a cloud somewhere. We're here to have the capacity to meet the reality of what's happening and the climate, um, it's more than climate change. Look what's happening in California this last few weeks where we're living. And our house was, you know, many people's houses. We, we were lucky. Our house was in the fire path. We got, it got missed because of the enormous, extraordinary work of the firefighters to stop it jumping the freeway. But so many um, peoples all over the world are experiencing the results of climate catastrophe now. And it's coming right home to us. And, uh, you know, I've been reading even the New York Times today, you know, is California habitable? Is the whole way we've understood this paradise of California, you know, the whole perceptions change over the last three years because of these devastating fires and winds and droughts and so on and floods that we're experiencing, not just in California, but in, uh, in America. So these, these are things that we have to figure out how to bring into our teachings, you know, this is an unprecedented catastrophe that we're facing as humanity that calls into question our ability to even survive. And we haven't got a lot of time. So it wouldn't it would not do justice to the Dharma if we weren't actually if we just pretending that this wasn't happening. On the other hand, to just flood everyone with that when they've just trying to take a break and they're you know, we're sort of faced with this an enormous amount of information every day and every piece of it seems to be increasingly challenging and people just want to go on retreat and then you just sort of face them with every emergency. That's not necessarily the most skillful way to approach it. So to 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 name what's going on to some degree but to also focus on the building of community, the building of resilience, the building of these internal practices that can help us and to to explore, I've been very involved in activism, in climate activism. I was at Standing Rock and have been involved in declaring climate emergencies and bringing, writing up um, guidelines to bring that into Dharma communities. How we can we do this? How could we 
do this in institutions and in universities? How can we actually? Because once you once we consciously name this is an emergency, then we realize that business as usual isn't there isn't you know it's getting more difficult to continue business as usual. For example, just in the uh, in California now, the turning out of the of the power for days on end. You know, there's no traffic lights. There's no um, petrol. There's no pumps going. There's no credit. You know, you can't ATM anything. You can't go to the shops. There's no internet. You know, this is nearly over a million people. You know, you can't say this is business as usual. This is like, you know, it's the fifth leading economy in the world or something. You know, so these are things that are happening um, increasingly. So how do we face this? How do we bring these practices to this so that we are we have resilience that we have clarity that we're we're not bullshitting ourselves you know we're just looking head on into what's coming and and then you know i don't think this is something that we should be facing personally that's my main probably um focus point is that a lot of these practices, we're looking at how we personally develop these. But this is something that we need to have collective conversations around in these communities. These are things that we need to talk around. These are things we need to share, you know, because this is unprecedented. This is an unprecedented, multifaceted crisis. It's like the whole systems that we've been in are not equipped to deal with the political systems, the economic systems. Um, they're not equipped to really deal with this crisis on all the levels that it needs to be dealt with or responded to. So, it's, so that's the difficult news. But in the heart of that news, I just there is just an enormous amount of awakening and questioning and revisioning and relooking. And you know, this is an ev- energy revolution as well. It's a sort of revolution that we're in on so many parts of our beings, where all the old structures that we've been in, it's like this isn't working. We need to re configure we need to dump this it's not working and we need to do something radically different and i i do think that um i know at the moment there's a lot of struggle particularly politically in the u.s but america is known for the innovative spirit (laughs) you know this is what a lot of people globally in spite of some of the difficult histories that have happened um since 9-11 you know that has faded america's star somewhat globally but you know, there's still this sense of this tremendous spirit um, that that grew America. And there's a tremendous shadow as well, but there's tremendous spirit. So I think that there's, you know, great hope in that, that uh, that it's a culture that can move quickly, that has innovation, that's able to go, this doesn't work, let's move here. Um, so, you know, I've, this um, ability to meet, have that spirit and the Dharma what the Dharma can offer um, into that dialogue, I think is there's a, there's a tremendous amount. You know, the resiliency and the support and the collective community conversations like you're hosting here um, and the internal skills to be able to grow that wisdom and that compassion and that clarity so that when, you know, the lights go out literally... Um, when the fires are coming down on us or whatever it is, that we're just not defaulting to some tribalism or some nationalism or some sort of fear or some violence, that we have some capacity to hold um, what's the best in us for ourselves and for each other. So that's some of the ways that I'm thinking about all of this and bringing that 
into our teaching. So it's not just disaster, but also let's consciously prepare ourselves and grow some real skills and strengths together as well. And what what do we need and how can we do that? Mm. Is there anything I should have asked but didn't? (laughs) I just... Thank you, Tanisha, for that, that reflection. I think I would just add that these contemplative practices, these meditation practices, are shifting our refuge, our place of safety, place of abiding, from over-reliance on external things. Like if you're relying on things out there just being the same and trustworthy, uh, as Ajahn our teacher Ajahn Chah would say, if you look for certainty in that which is uncertain, you're bound to suffer. Mm-hmm. And so if wanting things always to be pleasant or wanting the economic structures, the political structures, the service industry structures, the, you know, if, you, if that's where your security is only, then is that, is some of those things uh, shake and tremble and even compla- collapse? One is totally lost. When you're learning how to find an abiding that, that, that's not just airy-fairy, but is based on, on learning to know and be in connection with how things are, but learn to recognize the in-breath and the out-breath, things going well and things not going well, things being pleasing and neutral and even painful. One learns how to recognize that and, and find a peacefulness and an abiding in, in, uh, in being with uh, things the way they are. That's a huge blessing. And also in our training, learning how rather than only to be excited and look forward to a life that needs constantly a lot of external stuff, learning how to touch this world lightly and to rejoice in a breath, to rejoice in presence, to rejoice in the, the experience of being able to share, uh, the experience in being able to rejoice in others' good fortune, the experience of being able to appreciate simplicity. This is also a, a, a revolution and a way of living that's not exploitative, that doesn't just chew up resources to quite the same uh, d- d- degree. And especially if we, this uh, appropriating consciousness, this consciousness defines only security in what I own, what I have, what I control, Everyone starts to investigate that and relinquish that hold a bit and start to realize that we are this mis- part of this mysterious, vast totality. This is a, there's a soft surrendering in that where one is uh, holding the, 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 the world more lightly and where there's a possibility of appreciating our deep kinship with each other, with our fellow beings, and with Mother Earth. So, so that's also uh, not only a part of a learning to face the coming challenges uh, more equanimously, but it's also part of uh, the solution of finding our collaborative spirit, finding our being able to live simply, and also finding just, just as if we know from, and you like science, you measure how a body is of someone that's so driven and so stressed out and that heart rate and that blood pressure and that... Uh, the system is jumpy. There's someone who, and, and that's why mindfulness is so big. You know, for years, meditation was mumbo-jumbo, but suddenly when it shows up in the tests, in the labs, whoa, 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 everybody's interested. 
Because even though the mind is so-called just the mind, the body, the heart rate, the calm, the peace, and so attitudes of mind bless and transform matter. Just as your mind has its effect on this physical body, also collectively, you know, when as we really compose ourselves and change our attitude, that can also bless Mother Earth, bless our environment, bless the world that we live in. And it's a mysterious world. It's hard to prove, so to speak, but it's one that we're uh, deeply uh, devoted to and interested in exploring. If people want to learn more about the two of you or one of you individually, are there resources, books, podcasts, websites, yeah, well, social media feeds? I think the best thing is, is our uh, – well, we did write a book called Listening to the Heart – which we wrote together, which gives a sort of overview of many of the points that we've been touching into today. It's called um, subtitled Engage Dar- Buddhism for Our Time, something like that. I wrote a book called Time to Stand Up, which is more focused on um, issues around um, climate and also uh, resourcing ourselves and looking at the syst- systemic um challenges particularly within buddhism of being able to really meet the times that we're in um, particularly around patriarchy so that might be particularly many women are very interested in that book's very supportive so it's an engaged um manifesto for our times and the website is sacredmountainsanga.org um so that's probably oh we'll put it in the show notes but yeah. Sacred Mountain, S-A-N-G-H-A. Yes. Dot org. Org. Yeah. 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 Yeah, so there's stuff on that. <laughs> people can, and then we have an online course that people can access on a, on a freely, which goes over the main principles of Buddhism. Um, it's in three parts, three modules, ten lessons for each part. And so it's um, some gathering, calming meditations, insight meditations, um, Zen meditation, so it's got quite a range of teachings and resources in that. So that's online; you can access that on our website. Such a pleasure to meet both of yeah, you. Likewise, yeah, likewise, Dan. Thank, thank you, really thank you so much. Thank you. Yeah. We've been, we're honored to be invited. That felt like quite a journey. To talk with you. <laughs> <laughs> that was an amazing discussion. Big thanks again to Tennisar and Kitisaro for coming on the show, and to Seven A Selassie for. Um, waking me up. I, I was sleeping on these guys and I'm, I'm glad to know that uh, how amazing they are and hopefully to stay in touch with them. Uh, before we go, I want to say two things and hopefully I don't say it in a perfunctory manner because I mean both of them. One is if you want to do us a solid uh, and talk about us on social media or text individual episodes to your friends, that kind of organic growth is huge for us. So if you, if you feel like it, that would be great. And the other thing is to just thank everybody who puts this people work incredibly hard putting this show together and i really am grateful ryan kessler samuel johns grace livingston lauren hartzog tiffany omahundro Brittany, who's uh, operating the boards today on a, on a sunday morning as i record this thank you to all of you and thank you for listening we'll be back next wednesday with another show if you like 10 percent happier and i hope you do uh, you can listen early and ad free right now by joining wondery plus in the wondery app or on apple podcasts Prime members can listen ad-free on Amazon Music. Before you go, tell us about yourself by filling out a short survey at wondery.com slash survey. 
Shimol Yai, and I have a new podcast called The Competition. Every year, 50 high school senior girls compete in a massive scholarship competition. I wouldn't say I have an ego problem, but I'm extremely competitive. All of the competitors are used to being the best and the brightest, and they're all vying for a huge cash prize. This will probably be the most intense that you've ever gone through in your life. I remember that feeling because I was one of them. I lost. But now I'm coming back as a judge and also a kind of teen girl anthropologist. Because if you want to understand what it's like to be a young woman in America today, the competition's not a bad place to start. Hopefully no one will die on stage tonight. From Pineapple Street Studios and Wondery, this is The Competition. Follow The Competition on the Wondery app or wherever you get your podcasts. You can listen to The Competition early and ad-free right now by joining Wondery Plus. For more than two centuries, the White House has been the stage for some of the most dramatic scenes in American history. Inspired by the hit podcast American History Tellers, Wondery and William Morrow present the new book, The Hidden History of the White House. Each chapter will bring you inside the fierce power struggles, the world-altering decisions, and shocking scandals that have shaped our nation. You'll be there when the very foundations of the White House are laid in 1792, and you'll watch as the British burn it down in 1814. Then you'll hear the intimate conversations between FDR and Winston Churchill as they make plans to defeat Nazi forces in 1941. And you'll be in the Situation Room when President Barack Obama approves the raid to bring down the most infamous terrorist in American history. Pre-order The Hidden History of the White House now in hardcover or digital editions wherever you get your books.